0: You are listening to Radio Albion. Hello everyone, this is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and you're listening to the Orthodox Nationalist here at the end of February, February 24th, 2024. Um, I have, just to get this out of the way, uh, a few essays going up on my Patreon page, which I recommend you subscribe to. You can't read anything unless you uh, subscribe to it. Um, on the fraud of psychology and, of course, the Stoic uh, stuff that we've dealt with already and an analysis of the land versus the sea power, the, the Eurasianist distinction relative to Byzantium and Venice, which is a concept I've been playing with for a very long time. For all of you um, I appreciate your donations. They mean the world to me as we start the, the tax season. Keep in mind that direct donations do not have to be claimed by me, that is, which is a, a wonderful uh, side effect of this. I had a friend of mine, before we get into what I really want to talk about today, I had a friend of mine email me, and he asked me an interesting question. He, and I've, I've had this before. The question was put strangely. He said, how many books or what is a list of books do I have to read before I could claim any level of expertise in your field, whether it be Russia studies or whatever? And yes, I get that from time to time. I think he's a supporter of mine. I don't know, but um, it's a very good and very legitimate question, although the problem is. The question's premise is a problem. This isn't a list of books because, of course, that implies that any book that I may recommend, very few of which would be in English, at least for the advanced student, um, that you're prepared to read it. That, you know, so many of these are very technical. They use a, a language and a form of argumentation that isn't normal, that you don't come across In the increasingly vulgarized uh, public world um it's sort of like saying i want to be a great cook so give me a list of cookbooks that i have to read you know the cookbook tells you everything you have to do right it has the ingredients it says what and yet no one would ever claim that to be a great chef you just have to go through the requisite number of cookbooks what's the difference what is this gap between the cookbook and becoming a great chef and why isn't it just memorizing everything that's in these books because I have instructions and everything else um, and the cookbook examples actually used by Michael Oakeshott I think in his rationalism and politics I did my dissertation on um, another way to, to approach it is a let's say a criminal case a famous criminal case murder spree whatever that you want to get into, well, the first level is is the bad one, and that's what the media are saying, what the documentaries are saying. Every once in a while, I get interested in one of these cases, like the Arias case in Arizona, and what the media says and what the documentaries say on the one hand bears no resemblance or a minimal resemblance actually what's out there. Now, if you want to go through all the court documents, you're going to be reading for a very, very long time. There are boxes and boxes and boxes of of these of varying levels of, of significance. But if you get deep into something, I'm a big fan of Juan Martinez, so I got, kind of got into the Arius case a few years ago, the documents are extraordinary. Just the sheer amount of information. But just like the book question or the cookbook question, it's not sufficient. Because even if you read Every syllable, everything from the affidavit, probable cause, all the way to the conviction and appeals, well, that kind of implies that you know criminal procedure, both at the federal level and at the state level, that you know what all of these terms mean. Of course, it's going to be saturated, especially when the lawyers uh, put it together, with the nature of legal argumentation, uh, legal language, and procedure. What evidence can be suppressed? What is permitted? What's the criteria? The endlessly complex uh, hearsay rules. And then, of course, at the local. So even if you read everything, and if you go through all the cookbooks, in no way are you a chef. In fact, you can't claim to be a chef at all. Early on, you know, everyone um, has to have a, a master. There's always a particular individual, maybe a few that guides you. People who have already uh, gone very far in mastering this. Everyone needs a Yoda um, that can bring you you know mine was uh, one of my my earliest ones was a great Don Paul Rosenberg uh, German background converted to the Russian Orthodox Church many many years ago. I think he's still on the parish council at Our Lady of the Sign in, in Manhattan. He was one of the first and put me on this path and there have been a few others Since then, he's also uh, used to be the vice chair of the Russian Imperial Union Order. Um, And he was the first to put me on this path. It's a way to guide you, just like any any teacher would, although in this case a very specialized one. Not to mention the teachers who do more uh, broad methodological issues. You know, the writing of history, the writing of comparative politics, and everything that that entails. So... It's, it's not merely a set of books. Of course, hermeneutics is extremely important. It would be silly to say, to say otherwise. Um, now, I had the benefit of going through graduate school in the state, Midwestern state university system. It's another way of saying that I mastered, and I had no choice but to master, there are enemies approaches their books their studies i know them as well as they do they don't know our stuff at all they simply have no access to a lot of our a lot of our information Very dishonestly they they kind of this bemused mastery the wave of the hand i don't have to worry about that stuff which is very convenient uh for them unfortunately and i hate saying this to anybody um The language is important. When I first started, there was no real Google Translate. And when it first came out, it was awful. If it wasn't in Latin letters, it was worthless. And it took a very long time. Now it's pretty good, actually. But for a long time, it it either didn't exist or, or might as well have not existed. And you're talking about a massive, massive period of time. A decade and a half, maybe. Where you can go through not just the, the works and the theories and the understandings of a specific field, but everything around it. You can't talk about old Russia without talking about the theology. That's like talking about Tibetan history without mentioning Buddhism. It, it, that couldn't possibly make any sense. They do it all the time, of course, in the Anglo-American world but they wouldn't dare do that when it comes to, say, Tibet or or something like that. You really can't understand the system, at least up until the modern era, without understanding the theology, because everything they uttered was saturated with it, and that language. That's not a matter of of opinion, and your typical Anglo-American scholar really is, is bereft of that knowledge. They're secular, they're often urban or suburban, and they, they're they simply too alienated for that. If you want to talk about the Slavophiles, well, you better know, not just Plato and Aristotle, but you have to know at least the beginnings of German idealism. Because all of this is, is taken for granted. It's like studying the words of Christ without knowing the Old Testament. Christ, of course, as a man, assumed that his readers understood the law and the prophets, at least to, you know, on some basic level because he cited them in almost everything he said. Uh, Political theory. Now, of course, we're all going to approach this differently. Some would be more interested in economics, some with foreign policy, uh, diplomacy. I I get that. But the basics don't go away, and they're they're not a matter of opinion or preference. Even the theory of monarchy in the Middle Ages, whether it be the classical world in, in Rome, medieval uh, uh, West, medieval Byzantium, the beginnings of um, the Muscovite state through Bulgaria. There's a lot of material, and unfortunately, very little of it's in English. And um, for some of this very old stuff, even a good Google Translate's not going to help you. This is is a completely different orthography and a completely different uh, uh, vocabulary. One of the more important things approaching mastery of this, is that you can't import Western terms and you can't import Western thinking. Now, this is really, this is a tough one. This may be the toughest one of all because it's almost impossible to communicate in English and not make reference to that stuff. This is one of the reasons I make such a big deal about the Slavophiles, about nominalism. That's the, the beginning of fighting your way out of this, you know, Newtonian universe that we're all uh, forced to to live in. Um, a long time ago, I did something on logical fallacies, which, especially the informal ones, are um, are very difficult to avoid. And how few people now! I have an essay. I don't know if I ever am going to publish it, making fun of one of these very amateurish, you know, patriot books, and it's really bad. And, but I used it to give some great detail, some painstaking detail as to what the problem is here. I don't know if you've ever heard of the French spree killer, speaking of killers, uh, Jean-Claude Ramon. He murdered a few people in, I think it was 93. And most of us don't lie if he claimed to be a doctor. And that's how he got the confidence of certain people. He knew just enough medical lingo. He read journals and stuff like that. Um, Spent a lot of time in the lobby of the WHO in Europe. um, He knew just enough to convince pretty much everyone around him that he really was a functioning MD. But, you know, he worked abroad. He knew just enough of the language and, and had just enough of the personality of someone you may expect to be. Of course, he never was a doctor. And he used that as a means to get away with with killing people. Now, none of us were medical doctors. Maybe he would have fooled all of us. Because, again, he knew just enough. That's how someone who wants to commit fraud would go about it. The problem everyone's going to face is that by the time you get all of the... Everything from, you know, economics to diplomacy to foreign policy to theology to philosophy to uh, agrarianism to geology everything relevant geography everything relevant to uh, you know area studies in this case uh, russia or ukraine you're talking about stacks and stacks of reading material but at the same time you're called on to master the methods by which this can be digested and organized that's what the comprehensive examination is. You have to, it's not just a matter of knowing it, you have to put it in Put it in order. So, you know, as a young man, I remember, God, when I first came across the Talmud many, many, many years ago, I had no idea how long it was. I mean, you were looking at stacks and stacks of material in numerous languages, and I was uh, very scrupulous. I, 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 I didn't want to skip anything. I've told the story about my conversion to orthodoxy starting in January of 95. I can't go into that now, but it's something that I don't think I could ever go through again. The endless and relentless self-questioning while going through a ridiculous level, the sheer volume of work, the church fathers, councils, and everything else, hundreds of volumes and thank God I knew my Plato and Aristotle and, and Plotinus, or else I couldn't understand a lot of it, especially the, the more philosophical-minded uh, fathers like Maximus and, and uh, uh, Justin Martyr. And I haven't even touched things like symbolism or the literature, poetry of the people. So that's, in, in, a, in a very brief time frame, that's about the best I can do in putting that out there. And maybe I could put that to good use. And what I really wanted to talk about, St. Theophan the Recluse. Again, this is one of these things that takes into itself many disciplines. Of course, I'm not claiming, nor have I ever claimed, to be some sort of a spiritual guide. I need a spiritual guide. I can't be one. I approach this stuff. I deal with a lot of church fathers, um, contemporary and and medieval, but I do it as a philosopher and historian, not as someone who claims knowledge of theology, theology in, in the ascetic sense. But St. Theophon, recently canonized, late 20th century, is very close to a contemporary. He died in 18, uh, he died the very, uh, 1894, the very end of the 19th century. So he was alive during some extremely tumultuous years little did he know what was coming after his, after his death God was very merciful to him but he was around for almost the entirety of the 19th century he's known mostly for his works on spirituality, the ascetic life and upon what you know, the, the issues on which it's based but he also had a, a, a more directly philosophical theory. Remember, this man traveled Europe. He had an audience with the Pope. He knew uh, the issues in in the Islamic world. He was very well traveled, and of course, had for a long time a, a position of of social prominence. Going into reclusion, according to him, is the thing that I remember most about reading when I first came across him, thanks to Sarah from Rose. Um, was that I can't serve God and man at the same time. He saw the writing on the wall like St. John of Kronstadt did a bit later. He saw the vulgarization that was being imported from the West, and he had a tough time um, dealing with it as a bishop. Although, as far as anyone knows, he was perfectly uh, uh, an ascetic in, in, in in that service too. But he was a competent philosopher. And again, this is one of these things where Russian philosophy doesn't necessarily follow the patterns of Western philosophy. Of course, they're influenced by it. They took uh, Plato, Plotinus, and the early, especially the Greek fathers, and went in somewhat of a different direction. You might not have, the Slavophiles would, would say at the same time, the same time, the, the height of Theophon's work, Slavophiles are, were increasing in, in prominence, that not, not all philosophy is going to be based on... Um, prose expository prose it is possible like someone like Nietzsche for example to do it in other ways but he didn't see really any boundaries between the different areas of philosophy this all comes down to what a human being is on earth for what is our final purpose Um, and how do we get there it all comes down to the connection between belief and action or the intellect and the will And I, you know, you start off this way. Well, the church fathers got into Platonic philosophy because, of course, that was um, the dominant and very healthy foundation of pretty much everything in the in the ancient medieval world. We talked about Stoicism a few weeks ago, and how you know it was also somewhat of a systematic approach to the world, not entirely, but they had to get into metaphysics because questions of Christ's nature. Their natures, his relationship to God, his relationship to the church, Trinitarian issues left them no choice. And this also um, took Plato in very new directions. And people like uh, Justin Martyr were explicitly aware of this. I've dealt with him at great length uh, some time ago. And it comes down to saying this, love, faith, reason. Not only do they need each other, but making any sharp distinctions among them may be an error. And the the Slavophiles made a big deal about just that. We get into metaphysics in order to make other things stronger, to make ethics and theology stronger. It's a way to communicate with others. Faith and reason are not that radically distinct. It has to have a ground. It has to have a, a foundation. Ego, the foundation of liberalism, individualism, cannot create peace. It cannot create knowledge. In fact, in Theophon's mind, and uh, the anti-modernist mind in general, it leads to nothing but endless strife. It never satisfies anybody. Since liberalism rejects human nature, the very existence of a human nature, there is no concept of of enough. How much of something do you need? Well, without any human nature, there are no boundaries. So that becomes arbitrary. Egocentrism is the great evil, based on pride, or at least rationalized by pride. So the nature of salvation and he's, he's brilliant in these, in these pithy phrases because so much is packed into a few words. It's the union of the soul and the spirit. Soul and spirit are two different things. The soul can face downward to the earth and hence ultimately the ego and utility or it can look upwards, so to speak, seeking the spiritual life. Looking down, you find out that created things don't satisfy anyone. If you believe it enough, it still doesn't work. You end up having to rationalize everything, engage in special pleading, especially when you don't know what to replace it with. We're all raised pagans. Most of us, even if we had a religious household, and I, I for the most part did not, Many of us were raised in modern America, modern Britain, modern Western Europe, or worse. And we're raised with a certain set of uh, values, not virtues, values. And rarely are any of them good. Now, the soul and the spirit, this, this is something that got McClock and some people like that into some trouble. We have to be very careful. There is a clear distinction. That the soul is something created. The spirit is not. God talks about having eternal life. He's talking about an immortality that's made possible by grace. That is to say, the Holy Spirit. The presence of the divine on earth. Sanctifying the creation through logos. Ego, self, the nominal, you know, the individual... The created thing, it never works. It never leads to satisfaction, partially because it's based on unreality. I've said this many times before, and so many of the ascetic fathers spoke of this, that a passion creates a false world. It creates a fantasy world. And as strange as it is, you have most people live in that make-believe world, thanks to major media and, and how many of us are, are raised. But for St. Theophon, doctrine itself, the nature not just of, of theology but of, of philosophy, how we, how we ground proper doctrine, it's rational in the, in, in the capital R, in sense of nous, connecting our reason to logos or reason, wisdom, that's found in the order of the world, the world around us. If we can identify. It. But this is ultimately what doctrine is. The salvophiles, things Theophon agree that the words that express doctrine are themselves uh, grace filled. They're they're energetic, but only to the extent that human beings can understand it. A word, we talked about the whole cookbook thing, words only go so far. Words and the things that they signify are not identical. Now, Theophon did say that the intellect can understand the essence, the essence of something, what human nature is, what justice is. We can do that. It's not easy. It is really the result of the ascetic life. But it's only the will that deals with utility, uh, attraction, or repulsion. But the will... Either dominates the intellect or is dominated by it. Healthy people, uh, the will is dominated by the intellect, brought into order. A will not connected to the intellect is chaotic, really amounting to almost nothing. But Th- Theophon goes even farther. He says, or further, passions are illnesses. This is what we mean when we're talking about mental illness. Passions, when they're out of control, create what we would today, you know, in a postmodern world, call a mental illness. They present the object of our desire or our fantasy in a completely false light. I've been through this before. When you want something, you picture yourself having it. And of course, what, what could you possibly, what, what reality could that possibly be? you creating a completely false world at no other time in history than our postmodern. Can these fantasies and images be broadcast now in so many different uh, media to the point where it's very easy to believe that that's reality? And it's not just the object of our desire that's presented by passion in a false light, the will not being connected to intellect and hence grace, but also ourselves. We present ourselves in a false light. One of the great marks of spiritual progress is getting a more realistic picture of who we are and the severity of our sins. And it's painful. The tears that all the fathers talk about, both real and metaphorical, come from this guilt. How could I have been so stupid kind of of things? But this also means, or at least implies, that knowledge requires suffering. Again, I've been saying this for a very long time. Anything worth having requires some kind of aesthetic discipline, even if you're not, you know, an aesthetic. It's painful. It's something that you want to do, but you don't want to do. You know, the doctor I mentioned, or the fo- uh, fake doctor I mentioned, he loved the idea, being very egocentric and narcissistic, he He loved the idea of the prestige that being a doctor gave him. But just, God, all that work, years and years and years, anything could go wrong. No, I want the image without the substance. Now, he had another agenda behind it, but really, it's, it's an identical thing. Images can very easily, even by highly intelligent people, images can be taken for reality. Fantasy can be taken for ambition, drive, when in fact what you're driving at is completely distorted in your head. And as you get closer to your goal, you start realizing how radically the goal has has changed. We come to understand something through breaking down. These passions, the the emotion. You know, this is when I talk about the, um, the fallacies, which are so easy to fall into. Um. When knowledge is not systematized, uh, emotionalism, the complete inability to draw proper inferences, reliable inferences, have taken over and dated in life from from any kind of logical rigor. Words are always used equivocally. You know, a single word is used over many contexts. While the meaning remains the same, although not explicitly so, the um, etymological fallacy—the assumption that the original or historical meaning of a word is the same to its present-day use—this is a huge problem with amateurs, with people who want the the prestige of of being uh, scholarly or, or being knowledgeable, but don't want to do any of the work. Talking about a government in in fifth century B.C as totalitarian, is an example. The resources that a state, assuming the state existed at all, uh, the resources they had at their disposal are are almost nothing compared to what a 19th or 20th century state could have. Things like the argument to moderation. Well, truth is usually found in the middle of two extremes. Well, sometimes. Who defines the two extremes? But certainly not all the time. It's very common to have the distinction between group and individual collapse entirely. Sometimes, you know, the president and government are often conflated, not just as a matter of of rhetoric, but because they really believe they're one and the same. Um, We talk about, you know, a group of people. Well, not all of them are like that. As if that's relevant to anything. As if we're saying that every single living individual member of the group, groups are assumed only to be made up of, of individuals. In terms like all and every, which have deadly consequences, are assumed to mean every single one, rather than referring to, an essence, a group as a, as a unit, appeals to authority, which is endless, appeals to probability. One of my big pet peeves now, is people claiming that they understand the scientific foundation of something, and you say, no, you've read journalists claiming to understand the scientific foundation of something false equivalencies very very common error not all forms of killing or murder 17 year old soldier is not a child he may be a minor in the u.s but they're not children in the sense they're not toddlers one mobster killing another mobster is not the same as a serial killer killing somebody in the street So, calling both murder is iffy and provides, you know, a a tremendous distortion. These are just examples of of what happens when the suffering isn't there. The struggle, the ascetic struggle to fight your way through, especially when you're coming to conclusions that no one wants to hear, which makes everything a thousand times more difficult. And if I know anything, I know that. It isn't even that people necessarily disagree with you, but they get very uncomfortable when you start talking. Yes, of course you could demonstrate. You have the evidence, you have the statistics for anything you say. That's not really the point. Yes, they want knowledge, they want understanding, so long as someone else does the suffering. And sometimes we have no choice in the matter. Now, while the faculties of the human person are mirrored in the society and and vice versa he also saint theophan also makes the claim common enough that the heart which comes up a lot which has to be talked about the will spirit and soul are all distinct things the lowest form of say obedience is obedience to uh, rule-following, legal obedience, he calls it. That in and of itself, that does not save anyone. I know one of the uh, new martyrs, I can't remember which one, condemned this idea. Not that rules have no purpose, that's, that's not the point. But because they're made up of words, in a distinctive time and place, they could be interpreted out of existence really you know as Michael Hoffman would say the Talmud is just that it interprets the the uh, first five books of the Old Testament a uh, totally out of existence love is more important now when Saint Theophon used the term it meant something very different than it does now. now I've been through that so many times I'm not going to go through it again suffice it to say ultimately that when we talk about the essence of something, the the very definition and the purpose comes coming from that definition of something. You know, our purpose. Modernism is based, or Newtonianism is based on human beings or really anything else in the world as having no purpose, which is now assumed as, you know, somehow scientifically rigorous. The soul is the essence of the body. Of course, Aristotle said the same thing. And, of course, he lived at a time, and being well-traveled and knowing many languages, he came across Darwin. And, you know, it was accepted by the occult societies, the royal society, the lunar society, a whole bunch of others in, in London and elsewhere, without a whole lot of evidence. Darwin didn't provide evidence. He wasn't unearthing fossils. More importantly, though, what St. Theophon noted, was that it? Very conveniently, as far as modern industrialism is concerned, reduce man to accidental forces, both that they're accidental, and that they're forces based on some physical physical energy. And of course, he also notes that the evolutionist doctrine, which is an occult doctrine, it's not you know merely a scientific approach to the world uh, because every Revolutionary ideology since then has taken it. Um, As I've said, You when we talked about Marx, how essential it was for him. But these laws, these mechanisms, could not possibly have brought themselves into being. The laws of matter couldn't possibly have come into existence at the same time, if in fact evolution is true. I don't know how Darwinist doctrine ever survived the discovery of DNA. It's become a joke now, which is why it has to be imposed by force. So if the soul is the essence of a body, the human body that is, Uh, but people like Augustine talked about animal species as having a single soul that connects all members of the species, uh, while of course uh, men have an individual soul, as a as a reasonable being, a rational being. But what it what it all you know the summary is that neither free will nor can the laws of nature ever evolve, because it would have to evolve on different laws than the laws of nature. I always thought I know this may be odd, but. When you read even a little bit about DNA and RNA and the immense complexity connected to even the simplest of cells is so extraordinary that a god of immense power has to exist. Because I don't care how long man is around, we're not going to fully comprehend how DNA and RNA work in the context in which it works, especially historically. Freedom, though, and this is people like uh, Frank and many others, St. Theophon says it's freedom, that is free will, and hence virtue. That's the stumbling block to revolutionary ideology. It's overwhelmingly, revolutionary ideologies being materialist have to reject free will. They often don't scream that from the housetops. That's esoteric amongst themselves. They simply redefine, if we've talked about this many times, They define free will as being cognizant of the fact that you're not free, and you have full knowledge of that which is determining you. Somehow that's possible when, in fact, not only you're not free, but there's no spirit. Hence, everything is material in one form or another, and therefore completely uh, controlled by chance and cause and effect. The soul, though, being the essence of the body is not a simple substance at least from the point of view of human beings not god of course or the angels we see it very differently because we're we have soul and body you know we have to learn things slowly but surely angels manifest the form understand the form right away the archetype right away that's why satan can't repent because there is no gradual understanding something being non physical They grasp the archetype, the form, the Logoi, right away as a single unit. But from our point of view, it's different. So the soul appears to us, being very limited, as containing logic, thought, reason, and if you want to be platonic about it, that also would include uh, our will and our emotions. Now, St. Theophon connects the will to the heart. And this is where things, in, even in the, the ancients, the ascetic theology gets complicated. Because the soul and the heart are not the same thing. Actually, I dealt with this at some length when we dealt with Skovoroda, one of my favorite uh, early, uh, not early, uh, modern philosophers from Russia, Ukraine. But what is clear is that virtue and freedom imply each other. Reason and freedom imply each other, really for the same reason. Something isn't virtuous if it's not a matter of, or vicious if it's not a matter of choice. If it's a matter of choice, the only thing that makes any sense there is that we can have a rational discussion with ourselves about which direction we go, which, which choice we make. Saint Theophon says then that secular knowledge doesn't really change anything. And it's that's the the case because it doesn't change us. The fact that we could know many things and have none of it penetrate into how we live. We've all we all know what that is. We all we've all known things and yet refuse to act on it for one irrational reason or another. Again, this is part of the reason that a, a passion is a disease, it's a it's a mental illness. When it's not constantly under the royal control of reason, reason itself, illumined by grace, energy, logos, and hence the very structure of the universe. And every level there is is reason. Secular knowledge changes nothing because it's purely external and purely formal. When he says secular, I think he means scientific. Um, Everything based upon material, scientific in our sense of the term. It's material. It's able to be expressed mathematically. It's based entirely on formal qualities, uh, or I should say quantities, and, and nothing else. Now, we have needs. Everyone does. And they have to be prioritized. This is one of the ways that reason imposes itself on the otherwise chaotic passions. One of the things it does is prioritize What's the most important to us and why? Other than the basic needs that every single living thing requires, there's things that only human beings require. And that's to be found in human nature and hence natural law. This is where the boundaries are, are set. Something that a human being needs to be sane, to be, to be uh, functional. Now, of course, these are very general things that you could find in every single civilization. They're too general for policy, but policy derives directly from them. Every civilization that has ever existed, except for this one, um, has the family as at the core of everything. Yeah, I know Margaret Mead tried to deny that. She was made a fool of. Later on, she had an agenda. But wherever you go, the extended family, usually, is the dominant cell of society. Yeah, they may differ uh, on the fringes, but it's the same concept. Therefore, there's something natural about it. It's a part of human nature. It's a boundary that if you cross and you destroy it, you then start creating an artificial um, society that breaks down. It becomes a machine rather than an organism. A machine has to be controlled by somebody. And if everything is mechanized, that means everything can be regulated. The will, or really, you know, the heart uh, as, as the foundation of the will, ranks things according, usually, you know, in our, in our errors, by what we want the most. You know, I want money first, I want women second, I want a good reputation third, etc. But that has nothing to do with the truth of the matter. That derives, as we said, from your fantasies. From what you think you want. Because what you see in, on the screen somewhere. Oh, people with money have such exciting lives. And you have all these fantasies about being out in a yacht or some, something like that. You know, having no clue of what it's like to live that way. And I think John Chrysostom said, they're not happy. I know it from experience. But a proper prioritization is based on truth truth based on logos and the revelation of logos. Everything is based on, everything is at least amenable to reason. Some things are above reason, that's true, but certainly nothing is beneath it. Now, when he talks about the heart, this is, um, it's a faculty distinct from the soul, although, you know, they're, they're not radically distinct from each other but this is the seed of integrity where all the functions of the soul all the functions of the body are brought together in one unity that's what he means by the heart at least in my in my uh, many readings of him uh, not every church father whatever era will define it the same way the the conclusion is the same but that's how he's um, Defining it here. From that, the will comes. That's where it derives. It's the meeting, put it, putting it differently, it's the meeting of essence and existence. Not just the fact that we, you know, we are integral through reason and rational. It isn't so much that you don't have emotions anymore, but these emotions are directed to their proper end. You know, scrupulosity can be put, for example, can be put to negative use. It can be put to positive use. It bec- it could become an obsession and dominate all else. Reason provides the boundaries. Now, how often in the postmodern world do you hear that boundary breaking is somehow a good thing? But of course, in a transhumanist movement, in a so-called post-racial—that is to say, post-white—world, uh, um. There ends up being absolutely nothing. Breaking boundaries is uh, precisely the artificial um, universe that every totalitarian requires. Again, if everything is reduced to mechanism, if everything is reduced to its component parts, that automatically means everything is reducible to, or everything is amenable to, legal regulation. He defines, and in, in in this very same discussion, he gives a very general definition of what salvation is the union of soul and spirit, all our faculties in integrity, but also illumined by grace, which is you know what that means. Damnation is a little different. It's not merely the reverse of salvation. Put simply, Damnation is for those who are exposed to the truth, who are exposed to the proper end of reason, and yet, for some reason, still refuse it. And this should really be frightening. Orthodox people, whatever, this should be very frightening because even the knowledge of the truth and the belief and the efficacy of that knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that the heart is going to be illumined by it. You know, the famous line from Augustine in the Confessions, you know, I want chastity, but not necessarily now, or whatever the Latin translation is, not yet. And after a while, that can become a habit. So many of us, I'm certainly not innocent, none of us are. The mere knowledge and acceptance of something in and of itself doesn't mean anything if, in fact, it does not illuminate the heart which is the broader unity of all of these faculties that St. That uh, Theophon has, has mentioned. In other words, our mind, this very same reason, unified in, in the heart, can be, and often is, controlled by imagination and fantasy. I think it was far more difficult to live that way a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, but when the regime is able to broadcast itself from every schoolroom, from every screen, from every note of its music, from every one liner of its comedians, every possible channel, it's very easy. You know, I've, how many times have I said that Americans, you know, right now, Americans are living in a period of imperial and economic collapse? And because of the fantasy world that's that's created all around them, they don't know it. They're in a situation far worse than the Great Depression, economically and otherwise. But because it's never put that way, in fact, the media are banned from using the word depression as an economic circumstance. They even say stupid things like the Great Recession. They just can't bring themselves to say depression. Of course, in my thesis that they, they project that repressed understanding onto the rest of the world, everyone else it's collapsing. Russia and China, they, they won't last much longer. How could they? And that's a subconscious, uh, you know, the, the projection, all these neurotic defense mechanisms are subconscious that if you were aware of it, you wouldn't do it. They're not aware that they're doing it, but they're absolutely convinced of it. Of course, it never happens, and somehow they continue to, to believe it. So in other words, it's not reason, it's not, it's not logic. There's something else. There's some passion or this mental illness ...that has constructed or helped uh, construct this fantasy world... ...that's far more comfortable than the real one. And that's the path to damnation. This is why he says all of these faculties... ...all of these things are connected. That's why integ- you know, what, we use the word integrity all the time. What does it mean? It's when all the functions and forces... ...that we have internally... ...everything from our bodily needs to our logic to our reason to our emotions to our priorities not to mention our our, our knowledge our and the f- uh, faith that's based on it and the presence of grace in the church all of that and that's a lot of stuff has to be arranged in such a way where it all is focused towards one end and that is not just the knowledge and belief but how that then motivates the heart this very integrity To action that of course implies that you're already carrying it out and because the heart more or less exists in the noumenal world that can be perfect even though our actions certainly aren't perfect in the sense that it's fully complete it doesn't need anything else that's what perfect means in this case that's what christ meant when he used the word perfect it's a matter of of integrity but even that, unless the heart is involved, that motivates the will and p- puts all of this into action in the phenomenal world, where of course we, you know, we can have the best intentions and everything can go haywire. That's not our fault necessarily. That's why intentions and in our conscience is far more important than the results. So many unintended consequences, um, and with an educated. Uh, set of actions a well thought out set of actions it really isn't your fault if things don't go well you know you could justify what you've done so in the phenomenal world the world of day-to-day um the design as as heidegger would say we've talked about so many examples of this yeah it's going to be imperfect it's not going to be manifest the way you're going to get depressed you're going to get upset and especially if you're a white male you live as a third-class citizen And it's going to get to you. And don't forget, God understands that. I think he knows what it's like uh, to be a a second-class citizen and ultimately be tortured to death for a long period of time. And so many of our forefathers have gone through the same thing. That's obviously, as any just judge or any good father would do, all of that is taken into consideration. But what St. Theophon is talking about are the formal qualities um of our salvation or the opposite now how we specifically manifest that in our particular station in life our state in life the catholics say that's a different story and that's where things get very complicated but you set up these boundaries and the heart protects it all through grace in the proper sense of the term integrity that, in and of itself, is a major victory in the year 2024, seemingly uh, impossible. Let me put it differently. There are three ingredients to salvation, especially in his later writings, St. Theophon says. Number one, the fear of God. Now, that, that comes up a lot. It's kind of a fear doesn't mean you're terrified of somebody. It's one of these words that has changed over the, over the years. Uh, it's like the word terrible. No, it's awesome. It's to be in awe in front of the power and the goodness of God. Yeah, there may be a tinge of that fear because you could, you can mess it up. You can find yourself in a, in a fantasy world of your own making. But that intense respect and awe has implications. If you truly are in awe of God's power, the complexity of the universe and everything else, it makes perfect sense to then organize your life towards recognizing, worshiping, and celebrating this. The second thing, related to the first, is to purify your conscience. Now, he's assuming we're not sociopaths. They have no conscience, and that's an increasing phenomenon. But we often condemn ourselves, whether we want to or not, for things that we do. And as we grow in holiness, we start seeing this in greater and greater relief. And third, the what he calls the thirst, the driving desire for spiritual progress. This is a place where a passion, once it's controlled, can do much good for us. This passion to drive for increasing spiritual progress, and that drive, that enthusiasm is absolutely essential. Now, speaking of the phenomenal world, being a philosopher, I think Theophan talks about Immanuel Kant. He comes up from time to time in this, in this program, and he believes that, well, he did some good. Kind of he, you know, he was living in the middle of the 19th century, remember? Kant was, you know, Kant and Hegel were absolutely dominant. The phenomenon... Hegel's critique of, of pure reason. What we perceive has no ground. It is created internally. I can't get into the Kantian stuff. I had to take two graduate-level classes on them. I still go to that material. Um, phenomena are created by the manifold, which is this unknowable swirl of sensate information that gets categorized by the categories which are internal to us including time and space. He criticizes Kant's ethics by saying, you know, Kant's argument, according to him, is that, well, we don't know God at all. We don't know of his... existence. Although Kant did believe in God. He may be unknowable to us, but we need to act as if he is. We really can't know ethical truths outside of the formal law, but we have to act as if we can. There's no ground to any of this. The categories, you know, time, space, becoming, uh, you know, the whole list of them in the, in the critique of, of pure reason. Of course, Aristotle has 10 in a very different way. How are they applied? They create the world. They order our experience. But the critique of these forms of experience requires a foundation. The Ding on Citra, the thing in itself, isn't a foundation, in fact, it's the opposite of a foundation. The categories, in other words, make an X out of nothing. And Theophon has a has a reply to that. Thought and being for him um, in logos are identical, but it's passion that separates them. The, the the faculties that we talked about, all of these are a single entity but it's passion. The blind force it uses rips them apart from one another. And what does he mean by force? Force is the same thing as a delusion. Now I bring up Kant here because um, a lot of people don't realize St. Theophan was very interested in Immanuel Kant. And his uh, critique comes down to uh, worrying about the excessive subjectivism excessive uh sorry yeah the excess subjectivism that that has i wish i could get into it in more detail i can't here i've done it elsewhere but um the categories take the unknowable thing in itself and create and structure order our world and he's extremely uncomfortable with that seems to be a rejection of logos. i know um um, Anthony Kropovitsky was vehemently opposed to some of this. While the concept of willing, we talked about Rousseau, the very same thing, my article on Rousseau was just published, I just put it up the uh, on Patreon, I mentioned Kant again here. Again, he was one of the dominant minds. He still is in, in that particular discipline. But the categories are in our mind. They're not created by anything but the structure of the mind now he doesn't get into where that structure came from he was not a uh, a scientific mind in that sense but in his work on on theology or philosophical theology the best thing is despite us not really knowing anything about god in his mind we still have to act as if he's everywhere watching that's that is not a rational way I demiano that's very very childish in in, in a sense That's not how you... In fact, it's a very dangerous point of view. There is no ground here. And this is one of the things that Hegel... uh, Why he even came into existence to supply that ground. The categories seem to be God because they take, well, some pre-existing material and they order our world from it internally. We are the demiurgos. This is... Hardcore masonry. But like Hegel, St. Theophon will say that thought and being really under the best of conditions prior to the fall of man were the same. And it's these passionate drives outside of the control of reason that splits them together. Again, blind force, another way of saying delusion. But justice, peace, as St. Augustine would say, very similar. Regardless of all of this, it requires humility above all. Not everyone's going to be able to get into this and understand it. This is a, a scholarly lecture series, you Orthodox Nationalist, but not everyone can approach it. This isn't for everybody. There's other ways to approach this, but ultimately what we all have to have is humility, which can be very difficult living in, in 2024. Humility in this, and not that we're, we're not worth saving. That's not what we mean by humility and self-condemnation. But justice, as we've already defined it, requires humility. And that is a requirement for peace. What he, When he defines virtue, we said in the beginning, virtue for him is the final natural purpose of any created thing. Us included. The difference is, human virtue is based on freedom, which is something that Kant did accept. Humility, and I think I said this with a few other people, humility and justice together, really requiring each other, like freedom and and reason require each other, that's where community comes from. Now, you have professors of political theory who don't know the difference between a community and a collective. That's one of the fundamental distinctions. You know, when I talked about Elin and the war against totalitarianism. So, in our earthly life, as we suffer, here are, and I'll end this way, the conditions of peace. And these are just a a few that, that he mentions. Selfless service. Another word for love. Where, through a controlled passion and emotion, Again, it has to be under reason, but it doesn't go away. He's talking about passions outside of rational control, but this is a passion within rational control where our desire for justice and truth is greater than our desire for self-preservation, selfless sacrifice. The distinction, especially in an orthodox country or in a community, between self and other is a myth. Now, I can't get into that. We have, I have mentioned that so many times with so many different people. Part of that humility, which is connected to selflessness, is to ignore the weaknesses in others, which is one of my big, big sins. Yes, I condemn myself for my weaknesses, but I do the same for others. And that's a mistake, especially involuntary weaknesses. He does accept your very basic rights connected to duties, you know, basic freedom um, you know, freedom of speech and assembly within the duties to your to your fellow man and your fellow Russian in this case. That has to be protected. And finally, vocations. Now we talked about vocations with Skovaroda and a few others. And a vocation is connected to selfless service. Vocation is something above a career, something beyond a career, something that absolutely defines you. You know, you're an artist, for example. You'd rather die than not be an artist. You don't care if you live in poverty so long as you get to work in that field. That's not a job, certainly. That's not a career. That's a vocation. The monastic life is your classic vocation. It has to be socially useful, of course, but it has to be something that drives you in the best sense of that term. Those are the conditions for basic social peace. And, of course, we live in an era where none of that exists. Where there isn't the public intellect in existence that could even ask the right questions, let alone coming up with the right answers. For the most part, we don't speak the same language as the regime. That's not something that Theophon had to deal with. People like St. Theophon and St. John Kronstadt, uh, Anthony Kropovitsky, well, he was a different story because he lived through the, through the revolution. They lived in a far saner time, but even they saw the outlines of the death of society that we're now living in. The fall of the Roman Emperor, of course, began the countdown to the end, and God, because of so many holy people, in the meantime, has held off on that end. But we suffer in the meantime. St. Theophan was a great intellect a great spiritual guide, and a great man. Unfortunately, the Western world doesn't have the intellectual scaffolding to understand him. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.